This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about identities, and we all have so many. For me personally, I'm a father a husband, ESPN host, former NBA player. I'm an entrepreneur. But I'm also a black man in spaces that aren't always comfortable to be in. I'm Jay Williams or Jay Will professionally, but I'm Jason when I walk through the doors of my home to my family. On TV, I'm scrutinized constantly. At home, I'm a father of two small kids. That takes up such a different part of who I am. And honestly, It's hard to compartmentalize all that. So for me, I'm always wondering about how you balance being a real-ass human being with a public persona. And how do you manage to come up in the game with all it throws at you while still being smart and thoughtful about your business? My guest today knows a lot about that. You probably know him as a larger-than-life persona with a larger-than-life name, Charlemagne the God. There's a civil war going on. Only this time it's with good white people and cracker-ass crackers. And the crackers have got to go, okay? All right, I've talked my way out of enough home invasions to know when something is a setup, okay? I don't even know who to trust in government anymore, but I know who I do trust. And that's no damn body. At this point, you could go back to school, get a degree in astrophysics, go through astronaut training, and still vote faster than a brother in Macon County. His government name is Leonard McKelvey, and he's from Monk's Corner, South Carolina. As a kid, he was a voracious reader. He also got into a lot of trouble, enough to land him in jail as a teenager. But cut to 20 years later, he's one of the biggest voices in media. You can catch him daily, co-hosting his radio show, The Breakfast Club. The show was a massive success, with 4.5 million listeners a week and over 2 billion views on YouTube. He's also got a weekly show on Comedy Central, The God's Honest Truth. Like Char on the radio, Char on TV is always wild, always attention-grabbing. The proper acronym for woke would be whites only kill everybody, okay? But like me, Char's got a different identity when he's not on the air. And also like me, he's trying to do work that speaks to who he really is. Last year, Lennard launched the Black Effect Podcast Network, a platform to amplify and celebrate Black creators in podcasting. He also partnered with Kevin Hart and Audible on a multi-million dollar deal for their joint venture, Short Black Handsome Productions. So from small town kid to DJ to big time personality, husband, father, author, owner, mogul, I want to ask Lennard how he stays centered as he continues to push the limits of self and identity as Lenard McKelvey, a.k.a. Charlemagne the God. I poured myself a special glass today, Lenard. What you pour? I poured myself a glass of Macallan 25 <laughs> for you today because I got to tell you, Cheers to you and all your success, by the way. I know you don't have a drink, but you don't need to. I'll do it for you. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate that. 
I appreciate the sentiment and the spirit. All good, man. Exactly. Um, I, I, I take a quick sip of that because I've had some of the most riveting conversations with you and the evolution of your thinking is something that a lot more people need to hear. But bring me back because I'm curious to learn about a young Leonard McKelvey from Monk's Corner in South Carolina. Tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about some of the things that occurred in your life that shaped who you are today. My mother was an English teacher, you know, so she she kept me in books. You know what I mean? I was in the book it program. Like, I was always reading. So, you know, from first grade to about sixth grade, I was in, you know, all these accelerated classes. But, you know, when you get to middle school and you the black kid with the glasses and the fanny pack and everybody in the accelerated classes is white, except for like one or two people. So in the morning, you hanging out with the white kids waiting to go to your class, but then you got your cousins, you know, who aren't in the accelerated classes. And, you know, they the guys that's the cool kids, right? They the ones that, mm-hmm. you know, got their hat on backwards and the baggy clothes. Like they, they, the, they the cool kids and they know my pops. So they see me hanging out with the white kids and they like, yo, you acting like a white boy. So they, they bully me, right? Push me around, you know, punch on me. White dudes like man, I want I can't be around you because you know these 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 dudes is punching punking you every morning. Like I don't want no parts of that. So now you're just stuck in this space, right? You stuck in this space where you you're not really accepted by the, the white the white kids, and then you don't fit in really with your, your cousins. So like you just kind of like stuck in the middle trying to figure it out. And then for me, around seventh grade, man, I just was like, man, if you can't beat them, join them. Hmm. You know, so I just started hanging out with the hood dudes. I started hanging out with my cousins, you know, and and thugging. And like most things in my life, if I'm going to be a part of it, I'm going to try to be the best at it. So I was doing, you know, anything I had to do to prove that I was down. What does that mean, Lamnart? Whatever they was doing that they thought was tough, I was going to do it times 10. Hmm. Oh, we going to fight? Okay, I'll go punch the person first. You know what I mean? Oh, we going to... You shoplift out the store? All right, I'm going to steal... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I steal the most stuff. Just... Dumb stuff. Just, you know, and I, I used to call it, we used to call it peer pressure, but it's not peer pressure. It's literally just us wanting to be accepted. And that's something I learned in therapy. We used to always, peer pressure to me is like you blaming other people for your problems. Like you blaming other people for the choices that you made. It's like, no, I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be down. And I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to be accepted and, and, and be down. And eventually ended up getting kicked out of school because those disciplinary problems in school led to me running the streets, you know, you started getting into drugs and, you know, carrying guns and all types of other stupid stuff. So I ended up getting expelled out of one high school, Berkeley High School, and they transferred me to Scrapper High School where my mama taught. And then I ended up getting arrested out of there because I was involved in a shooting, like literally sitting in the backseat of the car while somebody was in the front shooting. And, you know, no snitching. So, so, so I end up, so I, I end up going to jail, and you know, I finished high school in night school. Wait, you finished high school in night school? Mm-hmm. What the hell pushed you to get to that point? What made you decide, hey, now I want to be serious about it? Thank God, you know, listening to my father. My father would always say, if I didn't change my lifestyle, I would end up in jail, dead, or broke, sitting under the tree. And um, I always subscribed to this great quote and the quote is, you know, smart people learn from their own mistakes, wise people learn from the mistakes of others. So when I went to jail the first time and then I saw people around me actually going to prison, you know, getting 
five years at a time, you know, 10 years at a time, when people around me actually started getting killed, you know, in Monk's Corner, I was like, damn, Pops is right. And I was like, yo, that's not going to be me. So I just started doing the exact opposite of what everybody else was doing. If everybody was hanging out under the tree, I was the one going to work an odd job. I was working three, four different jobs at one time. You know what I mean? So, so that's, that's when everybody wasn't going to school and didn't have a diploma, I said, okay, I'm going to go back to night school and, you know, get my diploma. And that's what I did. You know, I, I had to go into Newark a couple of years ago and did a docu-series called Best Shot with LeBron and Maverick Carter, where we went into the local high school and it wasn't just about giving back monetary value. It was about giving back time equity, spending time with a lot of these young kids. And you saw that a lot of them were so much a byproduct of their environment and that their environment refused to help them grow or evolve if it didn't fit what that community's narrative was, right? Like if you were trying to do something positive or you're trying to learn about calculus or chemistry, it was almost made fun of in order to keep you constrained or keep you restricted or you know shackled to this past mindset that this is the only way we know how to get through. And if you do decide to do it a different way, then that's not our way, which means you're an outcast. I'm sure you hear about a lot of stuff like that as it pertains to your own story, but how do you talk to a kid that has those type of struggles? Man, I mean, transcending my circumstances, that's, that's been my- I like that. That's been my story. You know what I mean? And um, I always, for some reason, knew that I was- bigger than the environment that I was in. And that's what I would tell these kids. That's what I do tell these kids. I tell these kids, man, it doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish, you know, and, you know, be that rose that grew from concrete. Like, don't look around at your your, your circumstances and say to yourself, this is my end all and my be all. No, this is where you are now. You know, where, where, are you, where do you see yourself mentally five years from now, right? Where do you see yourself mentally 10 years from now? Because wherever you see yourself mentally five years from now, mentally 10 years from now, you can physically be there. If all you know is the hood, if you've embraced the hood and you said, this is all it's going to be, this is what I'm going to do. Like, we really do embrace the hood like that because we don't know anything else. I'm from Moss Corner, South Carolina. Even though I've transcended my circumstances, I still represent Moss Corner to the fullest because so much of who I am is that place. So what if I had told that kid sitting in that jail cell, that one day he will become one of the most unique, polarizing, authoritative, and rational voices in the culture today. What would you have said? I would have believed you. And the reason I would have believed you is because uh, back then we didn't have what you call cancel culture. And we didn't throw people away when they made mistakes. You know, back then, you know, the, one of the first books that I was put in my hand was the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, and from the autobiography of Malcolm X, I read Message to the Black Man by Elijah Muhammad. And I read this other great book in jail called From Niggas to Gods by Akil. My point with saying all that is all those books were about evolution. All those books were about how men can grow, how people can grow. You know, the Nation of Islam would take the worst of us and make them the best of us. So that that kid in jail, you know, reading that literature and studying the 5% teachings of Islam would have absolutely said, I believe you. After the break, the business of Charlemagne the God expands and Shar steps into a role as a media mogul. Plus, what kind of impact has that success had on his mental health? You're listening to The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. 
This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? Before we get back to my show, I have so much more to say. And so do my guests. Stuff you won't hear anywhere else but right here. So for bonus content, a sponsor, free version of the podcast, and more, subscribe to The Limits Plus. You'll be supporting the show and NPR, and each week, you'll get a bonus episode made especially for you, the subscribers. Last week, I talked about my cheat code, that life hack that helps me win every day. This week, you'll hear from Charlemagne about the cheat codes he uses to succeed in his personal and professional life. But you gotta subscribe. So do that at plus.mpr.org slash the limits. That link is in our episode description too. If you didn't hear me the first time, here we go again. Plus.mpr.org slash the limits. You sound like a pretty empathetic dude, man. And I got to tell you, it's fascinating because when I read articles about you, I see things or quotes from people like he's the hip hop Howard Stern or you know, this guy is extremely polarizing or um, it's things that kind of incite emotion. When people say things about you and who you were, even though that's not who you are now, how do you redirect that? How do you rechannel that? Honestly, I mean, I still might be polarizing to some people, but for me, man, it's just like, y'all, you got to 
allow people to grow. You got to allow people to evolve. I was a very confused, you know, young man at that time. Like when I first got on Breakfast Club, you got to think I had just gotten fired four times from radio. So I was just coming off a year of unemployment, you know, being 30, 31 years old, living at home with my mom, with my one, two-year-old daughter, you know, living with me and my now wife back home living with her parents, you know, because we couldn't afford to live in New Jersey no more. So when I got that gig at the Breakfast Club, it was about survival for me. So I was wilding, wilding. And then when you start reading magazine articles about you and they are saying things like, oh, he's hip hop Howard Stern. What does that even mean? You know what I mean? I never even took the time to step back and say, well, what does that mean when they say that? They might be saying that because they think I'm an exceptional interviewer. They might be saying that because, you know, I, I, don't, I don't bite my tongue. Who knows? But for me, I feel like I took all of the worst attributes to Howard and started, you know, acting like that. I just wish that, you know, they weren't stuck on that. Because sometimes people would be so stuck on who you were that they're not even appreciating who you're becoming or who, who you've become. Lenore, explain to me something, because you talk about cancel culture. And it's one of the problems I have every single day when I have to sit in front of a microphone for four and a half, five hours, and events come at me very arbitrarily. And it's my job to consolidate that information and then in a very concise manner, deliver you a very informed opinion. But let's be real about it. In a lot of industries, you get rewarded by clicks. You get rewarded by going viral or the more polarizing you could be around topics. How do you even navigate when something comes in on the fly? Like give me an example, like something that is very controversial and then you're supposed to just come up with some kind of thought and you know you have millions of people that are just waiting to hear what you have to say about it, but you don't want to get canceled, but you also want to speak your mind. I don't even do that no more. Back in the day, I would fly. I would just, because I didn't know any better, right? So I would hear something and immediately form an opinion about it for exactly what you just said, because I people expected me to have something to say, you know? And I didn't take a step back a lot of times and just examine it from a human perspective. So what's the, is there a right or wrong in this situation? No. You know, is there a bad idea a lot of times? Yeah. Like, like I, I would rather talk about the idea than the individual. You know what I mean? Like, like, like the Kyrie Irving situation was a, was a, a great example because I didn't understand why everybody was coming down so hard on Kyrie the individual. Because Kyrie the individual just simply made a choice. Kyrie's making the choice to sit out games. He's making the choice to miss money. That's on him. I would rather focus on the fact that, yo. 96% of the NBA is vaccinated. If all of y'all people, are, if all of y'all are so pro-vax, then how come y'all not telling that story? <laughs> you know what I mean? If you want to encourage people to go out there and get vaccinated, why not go tell the story of the 96% of the NBA that is vaxxed? All these other superstars that are vaxxed, the LeBrons, the Steph Currys, the whoever, focus on them. Why are we so hell-bent on focusing on that brother? Why? Because like you said, it brings clicks. It brings headlines. It brings attention. It's like if we take the brother out to the square and cut his head off in front of everybody, <laughs> people will want to see that blood. It's just like, yo, that's whacked to me. So you have the personality. You have the gift of gab. You have the experiences. You're unfiltered. You're unapologetic. You have the listeners. You, you carry the audience. When did you start thinking about how do I expand the business of Leonard McKelvey? When did that conversation start in your mind? Man, I've always I've always wanted to do that because um, 
you know, growing up, that's who I always gravitated towards. I gravitated towards watching Bob Johnson sell BET for $3 billion. I watched, you know, Diddy and Bad Boy. You know what I mean? I watched what, mm-hmm. you know, Master P was doing and Jay Prince and Jay-Z with, 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 with Rockefeller. And so for me, being that I used to want to rap, um, those guys were establishing businesses and they were preaching, you know, about ownership and independence. You know, our, our talent has gotten us gotten us to a certain point and it's opened up so many different doors for us. But it's like, what's next? Like, I want to be able to open up doors for that, you know, next generation, you know? So how do you do that? You do that by establishing things like the Black Effect Podcast Network, you know, with iHeart, where I'm, you know, majority owner, uh, along with my, my, my good friend, my family, Dolly Bishop, who's the president of the network. And, you know, you, you go get all of these black creatives that have these, you know, podcasts, but don't necessarily have a, a, a home for them. So they can possibly, you know, be as big as, as they, they can be. And, you know, you, you, you do that and you, you have employees and then you go launch your book imprint so you can help other people get book deals. It's like, yeah, I've, I've written two books, but, you know, when, when, when Simon & Schuster comes to you and they say, hey, you know, we want you to do a third book, yeah, you could take a whole bunch of money up front or you could be like, you know what? I would rather take less money to do my book but give me a book imprint. Mm-hmm. And they're like, all right, cool. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you only get what you ask for in, 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 in this game. You know, so for me, it's really just about, I really like throwing assists, Jay. If I was a basketball player, I would lead the league in assists. I enjoy that more than scoring points. I really like seeing other people come up. And if I could play a hand in that, great. Psychologically, Lenard, how do you go from man of the people to now all of a sudden you're becoming a mogul? Does that make you see yourself differently and how people interact with you or the things that people want from you? How do you navigate that uncharted territory? Well, you can be a mogul of the people, you know, but you do have to have boundaries. You know what I mean? And and I have to have boundaries simply for my own mental health just because, you know, I, I even changed my number a few months ago just because, like, man, the phone calls from back home were getting crazy. And not even just back home, just the, the things people were asking for was mind-boggling to me. I'm like, yo, who do y'all think I am? Like you what? know what I mean? I mean, it's $15,000. Let me get $15,000. I'll pay you back in two weeks. How? <laughs> like, I know, I know for a fact you've never made, you've never had fifteen thousand dollars at one time in your life. How are you gonna pay me back in two weeks? You know what I mean? And then it's just like, yo, people will really make their issues your issues. And I and I, I used to guilt myself because, and my wife used to had had to tell me to get over that because I would guilt myself and like somebody would ask me for something and I'd be like, I'm not giving that person that. One thing in particular was Halloween and um. I bought this whole Iron Man suit. Like, like this shit was from China, Jay. This shit was like really like some Tony Stark's <laughs> tech. Like it had the lights and everything. Like, like it was a suit. Like, like I had to help. I needed help getting it put on. Like I understood why Jarvis had to help Tony Stark's put it on. But it was literally like three grand. I wore it once for Halloween, never wore it again. So the guilt inside of me made me feel bad. So it's just like the people who... You know, I didn't say no to, but I didn't say yes to. I was just here, man. Take the take the five hundred dollars. Here, take the thousand dollars. Do your thing. Go. You know what I mean? Because I just felt bad that I spent money on that suit, but didn't help those you know people who asked me. But it's just like, man, you can't you can't save everybody and you can't help everybody. So you have to put up those boundaries because it will literally 
drive you insane. It'll drive you crazy. So, yeah, I still think you could be a mogul of the people. And the reason I think you could be a mogul of the people is because, you know, you give people what you think they need. One of the in-depth questions I have for you, man, is, and it's personal for me, when you step up to your microphone each and every day, how do you navigate this new world of social media, people saying hurtful things, people saying random things to you, so they just base an opinion off a snippet or a headline, and how does that affect you on your everyday life as a husband and as a father? Mm. I have two kids, right? And my daughter's three years old. My son is eight months. And a lot of the conversations I'm starting to have now with my wife, because I've seen the way it affects her to a degree, is when I say something, and it does carry a lot of weight in the social media world, people naturally start pinging her about what I said. And if it's something that people don't like, I've seen how that can ultimately affect my wife. And I wonder about if it affects my wife that way, how ultimately could it potentially affect my children when they get old enough to understand what daddy does and the effect that daddy has on his own industry. How do you deal with that from a mental health perspective? That's a great question, man. I got to feel into that one because that's a lot. That's a lot because, you know, I do think about, I do think about that really, really more so with my, my daughter. My daughter's, you know, 13 now. And, you know, for me, I think the, the biggest thing I would tell everybody, man, is that like, you know, change, change doesn't happen because we continue to focus on what was, or we continue to focus on on old stuff. Change happens when you, you know, really focus on, you know, building what's new. Because I can't pay attention to that because that's all a distraction. Like, I know that's not me or who I am. You know what I mean? So it's just like, and also too, it's like for me, I, I'm not one of those people that feel like if I express my opinion, everybody going to agree with me. I'm fully aware that, you know, there's people that's going to disagree, but we just live in this era where everybody's so hurt and so toxic. And once one thing I realized, Jay, man, if you just understand that most people are just projecting, you wouldn't even let this stuff phase you. Most, most people are really just projecting their own pain onto you. And it's not even about what you said. It's about who you are in the position you're in. How dare Jay Williams get to come on this TV every day and make great money to have an opinion that I may or may not agree with. And then maybe you have one bad day. You have a day where you woke up and your wife maybe yelled at you or your daughter fell down at school or something happy where you're just off your game for one split second. And that one little slip up all of a sudden becomes storylines that I'm on the phone dealing with my bosses about or talking to the CEO of my company about how we're going to do damage control. Just like that. When I'm on the radio in the morning, I set the tone for conversation. That thing that everybody's going to be around their water cooler talking about or on social media talking about all day, we're the ones that usually give people, you know, that fodder. We're the ones that give them that content. So, you know, everybody's boss got to get over that doing damage control. Like, don't let's not act like this isn't what you want. Okay? Like, come on. All you major companies, y'all know this is what you want. Stop it. Well, one of the byproducts of that, though, Lenard, is that when you do have to deal with that, if you have any pre-existing anxiety, it just adds on to it. I, I read one of your books, man, The Shook One, and it was so riveting to hear you talk about how you dealt with anxiety. Can you take us back to that moment when you first recognized 
that was something that you had to deal with head on? And how did you deal with it? Man, I've, I've dealt with panic attacks my whole life, like literally real bad panic attacks, panic attacks that would, you know, lead me to go like hide in the woods. You know what I mean? If I'm walking down the dirt road and I see a car coming, I'll go run in the woods just because I didn't, you know, want to interact with people like just, you know, weird. When I think about it, I mean, it was not weird. When I think about it now, you know, I just honestly grew up thinking I was like a coward. I grew up thinking I was just just soft, like, you know, but... I was really dealing with panic attacks. My homeboy, Jarrell, God bless the dead, he used to call me Big Noid. Big Noid was a rapper from, uh, you know, he was down with Mob Deep. But he used to call me that because I was always paranoid. So he used to call me Big Noid. Like, that was his, his, his joke name for me. But I was dealing with really bad anxiety my whole life. So 2010, after I got fired from radio for the fourth time, and I'm back home living with my mom, I had one of those moments where I was feeling like I was having like a really massive heart attack again. I pulled up to the side of the road, drank some water, told God, God, I'm going to go to the doctor tomorrow. Went to the doctor. Doctor's like, your heart is perfectly fine, which I've heard a million times, you know. And he's like, your heart is perfectly fine. But this is the first time somebody said to me, do you have anxiety? Because it sounds like you had a panic attack. And I was like, oh, nah, not that I know of. And he was like, are you stressed out about anything? I'm like, hell yeah. So in my mind, all I got to do is get another gig and everything will be fine. Did that, went to the, got the, the next gig with the Breakfast Club. But, you know, five, six years later, you're making more money than you've ever made in your life. You know, more fame, attention than you've ever made, in, than you, you've ever had in your life. And nothing has changed. Panic attacks are probably worse. Bouts of depression are probably, are definitely worse. So I had people like, you know, Pete Davidson, my little man, my little bro, love Pete, even though he way taller than me, love Pete. <laughs> but he he was going to therapy since he was a kid. He would talk to me about therapy. Neil Brennan would talk to me about therapy. I would hear Amanda Seals, you know, talk about therapy, you know. And it was just like, you know what? I'm going to start going to therapy. You know what I mean? And somebody like my, my homegirl, Debbie Brown, who's in the mindfulness space, you know, she, you know, she, she works with Deepak Chopra. Like, she's real big in that world. So it's just like... That's all of that just led me to start going to do some to start doing work on myself. And I have not looked back since. What was the first step? Therapy. Like, I mean, like the first step in therapy. Like, what was the first action item that you had? Oh, man. You know what's so interesting? I went there to actually talk about anxiety and talk about my my bunch of depression and um, you know, PTSD, slight PTSD. And um that just turned into all of these conversations about my childhood. And that's when it really started getting deep because I started like peeling back all these layers of my childhood, you know, everything from, you know, things that I've spoken about, but spoken about in a joking manner, like being sexually abused at eight years old. You know what I mean? Um, you know, my, my, my desire to want to be accepted by people, you know, um, never really truly feeling like I've been myself, like always being in character. Like I'm 43 years old and I'm, I feel like this is the first time I've actually, I'm actually showing up in the world as myself. You know, all, all those years prior was, I was like, like sixth, seventh grade, I created a character to protect me from, you know, being bullied. And that just kind of morphed into, you know, 
me wanting to rap and having all these different rap nicknames and then me seeing the name Charlemagne and taking that on and still rapping and but all the character and getting on the radio, you know, in 1998, 1999 and still being in this character. So it was this character that I, I created to like protect myself. And so, you know, therapy just started peeling back all of those layers, Jay, to the point where even now, I didn't know who I was. You know what I mean? So it's like even at this point in my life, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I don't necessarily know who I am. I just know who I'm not. You know, and like that was a very uncomfortable, vulnerable place to be because it's like you have all this confidence when you're the character. The character can just show up. I know what people's expectations are of the character. Give them that. I'm gone. But when you showing up as yourself, I'm constantly questioning everything now because. You know, I'm 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 showing up as me, and I don't even know if me is as interesting as uh, <laughs> the character Charlemagne was. Well, first off, I got to tell you, I need the number for your therapist because whoever that is, it's one hell of a therapist. Um, they are doing wonders with you. And secondly, I got to tell you, man, I I really relate to you. You know, when I was getting drafted, Char, my name went from Jason Williams to all of a sudden a multimillionaire person who was Jay Williams because I wanted to distinguish myself away from White Chocolate, the guy who played for Sacramento Kings, and then yeah. the other guy, Jason Williams, that just seemed to always do some kind of shit in the same town that I was living in, you know, shooting somebody, yep. <laughs> you know, getting pulled over for a DUI, getting kicked out of a hotel, something like that. But it was funny, even doing TV after I went through my accident, I felt like I had to be that persona. But I didn't know how to separate that. So I became that caricature all the time. And for me to hear you say at the age of 43 that you're just now starting to process, and I've seen it slowly from the outside. And you and I, we don't talk all the time, but I see Lenard. Like, it's Lenard McKelvey, Charlemagne the God. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, that's you establishing that you are enough. And I think that's one of the things that I realized through my wife and my kids that, yes, I am enough. And it takes a while to get to that point of your life, especially when you've always described yourself as somebody like a caricature. Yeah, and what's so crazy, I literally used to say to myself, I don't want to become a caricature of myself. And when I saw myself like really being that, like taking a step out of it, and like, yo, I care too much about what other people think I'm going to say. I care too much about, you know, saying the thing that's going to, you know, get people riled up or get people on my side or get the amen corner than I do what I actually believe. And that's a, that's a, dang, that's a dangerous place to be in, man. It's, not, it's just not real. If I'm, it's, just, it's just not a real space to be in. It's not authentic. You know, take it even a further step. It's you can do it because you're smart enough to do it. You can... Say something because you know it's going to incite emotion from people, which probably gets you paid more. But at what point do you recognize that you're only sacrificing more and more of yourself because you lose yourself in the process of doing that? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was having a conversation with um with John Stewart right before my, my talk show, The God's Honest Truth launched. John said, you've already won. He said, you've already won because you're light years ahead of all of these people. But you also actually believe the things that you say. There you go. And I said, what, doesn't everybody? And he goes, no. Fuck no. <laughs> that's, that's, he goes, no. That's the point. And I'm like, damn, I guess he's right. 
You know what I mean? Because, you know, you can turn on, you know, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Yo, it feels like everybody's performing. ESPN, Fox, but whatever it is. Like anybody with a microphone in their face just feels like they're performing. I don't want to perform. You know what I mean? I want to just express my real opinion, my real authentic opinion about people, places, things, ideas, and that's it. After the break, how Charlemagne and the Breakfast Club became a Democratic political hotspot, plus Charlemagne the God, the political voice of Black America? You're listening to The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. This message comes from NPR sponsor Arctic Wolf. The elite security researchers at Arctic Wolf have unveiled their essential insights inside the Arctic Wolf Lab's 2024 threat report. Discover the attack vector behind nearly half of all successful cybercrimes, why ransom demands climbed 20% from 2023, and find out why 2024 will be an especially volatile year for cybersecurity. Learn more and get your copy now at arcticwolf.com NPR. That's arcticwolf.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center. Every year, millions of people lose someone to cancer. But as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center ranked in the country's top 4%, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center is unrelenting in finding new ways to understand, detect, treat, and prevent cancer, unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. Learn more at MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Project Lead the Way. In today's changing world, every teacher deserves a STEM ally. Project Lead the Way is a proven national leader in science, technology, engineering, and math education for pre-K through high school. They strive to help teachers make every student in every grade STEM successful through interactive, problem-based learning. Learn more and find a school with Project Lead the Way near you at pltw.org NPR. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Pick a week. Charlemagne's having a moment like this. Last month on his own Comedy Central show, he's talking to the vice president. So let's improve that system. Charlemagne wants to know, Why is President Joe Biden letting a senator from his own party, Joe Manchin, stand in the way of his administration's agenda? I want to know who the real president of this country is. Is it Joe Biden or Joe Manchin? 
a provocative question, maybe too provocative. I'm sorry, I just want to interrupt, and I don't think the vice president can hear you. Someone on the VP's team says, oh, she, we can't hear you. She, she can hear me. <laughs> They're acting like they can't hear me. But eventually. <laughs> I can hear you. Oh, so who's, the real, you. so who's the real president of this country? Is it Joe Manchin or Joe Biden? Madam Vice President. Come on, Charlemagne. I really, Come on, I, it's Joe Biden. That wasn't the only thing about this moment that got everyone talking. It was also about how forcefully Kamala Harris pushed back. No, 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 no. It's Joe Biden. And don't start talking like a Republican about asking whether or not he's president. Do you think Joe Manchin and, is and a problem? It's Joe, and, it's Joe, and it's Joe Biden. And I'm Vice President. And my name is Kamala Harris. And the reality is... You see, the force of that response suggested the VP knows Charlemagne's power in the media landscape, his reach, who his audience is. And it is not easy to do, but we will not give up, and I will not give up. I just want you to know that that, that Madam Vice President, that, that Kamala Harris, that's the one I like. That's the one that And the thing is, having that kind of voice and power in politics, Charlemagne's been working on it for a long time. So look, Char, I've heard you interview a ton of politicians, everybody from Hillary Clinton talking about the hot sauce in her bag. Joe Biden, we all know that moment. They ain't black enough if they're considering to vote for Donald Trump. And an interview we just heard with Kamala Harris. But I'm curious, how did you decide to start integrating the political edge into your show? Well, that's that's something that, you know, we've always done is just that people just started paying attention like, um. You know, my mom, man, my mom would always tell me, read things that don't pertain to you. And so, you know, even though I grew up and I was reading the Source magazines and Double XLs, I was also reading, you know, Judy Bloom and Beverly Clearly. And I was reading things about UFOs and I always was intrigued about history. And like, you know, when you're reading the autobiography of Malcolm X or you're reading Message to the Black Man by Elijah Muhammad or you're watching you know, Minister Farrakhan's speeches, you go down these rabbit holes. I've always been into the Stokely Carmichael's of the world. I've always been in the Denmark VC. Denmark VC is a, is, is his story is super inspirational to me. And so it's like, even in hip hop, hip hop always talked about, you know, things of socially redeeming value. They're always socially conscious. So politics have always been a part of what it is that we do in, in our culture. So it's like, I've always wanted to sit down with, you know, elected officials. And, um, you know, it started really with my man, Bakari Sellers. Bakari came to the Breakfast Club when he was running for lieutenant governor of South Carolina. Bakari's a longtime friend of mine from South Carolina, you know. And so when he came on, he kind of like opened the floodgates because, you know, he got a, he got a, a really nice bump in his campaign. And then from there, I think the other thing people forgot was like, yo, a lot of those people like Bakari and the Angela Rise, like they, they are, they're our age. They're of the culture. Mm-hmm. They're of hip hop culture. So they listen to the Breakfast Club. 2016, that presidential election, man, you had so many black women running these campaigns. You had, you know, Maya Harris, who was Kamala's sister and, you know, uh, they, she had there was like a whole group of black women. Karen Civils around Hillary Clinton and Bernie had some Bernie Sanders had Simone Sanders and the Nina Turner's around him and Teslin Figaro and so Simone and Teslin was turning them on to the Breakfast Club and like no this is where y'all need to go this is where y'all need to talk. I remember Simone calling me to have me come host a town hall at the Apollo with Bernie Sanders, Harry Belafonte, Nina Turner, and um. Erica Garner, God bless the dead. Wow. And I remember when Simone asked me, and I said, why? 
I'm like, I'm like, I I'm like, why you want me to come host the town hall at the Apollo? And she was like, because people that we're talking to, that's who you talk to. I need you there. I'm like, all right. So I went to do it. And I mean, that's just really kind of how how all of that started. Like, and then it really kicked off in the next presidential election, even though in 2016, Bernie came, Hillary came, but that next election, it was like every, it was like that was must have been on the on their on their sheet. You every Democratic candidate had to come do, you know, the Breakfast Club. I was at an event uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to somebody about me having a chance to interview you. And I really respected this person. He was involved in politics for a while, but he said something to me that I really wanted to get your opinion about. He's like, "Man, the white establishment really made Charlemagne." the God, the voice of black America. And I, I thought to myself for a second, I'm like, did the white establishment, white establishment make him that? Does he even feel like he has the pressure of something like that for black America or is Charlemagne just Lenard? Is he just Lenard, Charlemagne, the God who speaks for himself and comes to the table with his own thoughts about how it's affected people he knows in his community and himself? Yeah, that's the stupidest shit in the world. I've heard that before and I don't even understand why people say that because when you say that, it's such a slap in the face to black people. And the reason I say it's such a slap in the face to black people is because I've been doing radio for 23 years. Like, literally, I've been doing radio for 23 years. I started off as an intern in 1998 building credibility with an audience all around the world, whether I realized it or not. Like, I was just in South Carolina doing my thing, but when certain things go viral, like, there's people that come to, come up to me now and talk to me about things that I said when I was on the radio in Columbia, South Carolina. They heard it on the internet, and then I got with Wendy Williams in 2006. So that, you know, put me on a national, a, a, gave me a bigger voice nationally. Then I had my own morning show in Philadelphia, and then I've been doing The Breakfast Club since 2010. Last time I checked... Like, the audience for Breakfast Club is, like, 80% black and brown. Like, black people made Leonard McKelvey, Charlemagne the God. Whatever voice I have, black people gave me that voice. And when it's, when it's time to hold me accountable, it's black people that's holding me accountable. So what white establishment made me the voice of black America? I'm not, and I'm not the voice of black America. There's plenty of black people out there whose voices are way bigger than mine. Ain't no, ain't no white man walked up to me and gave me a hundred million dollar check and told me do what I want with it, like they did Van Jones. Salute to Van Jones. But I'm just saying, if, if if anybody's been if anybody's been made a voice of Black America, it's somebody like Van. Them white people don't come to me. And by the way, when I'm on these programs, I always say. I can't speak for all black people because black people are not monolithic. Whenever they ask me a question about black people are black, and I'm like, well, I can't speak for all black people because black people are not monolithic. But here's what I think as a black man from, you know, a certain environment. This is what I believe. And those are, these, those are just my thoughts. If, if a lot of people agree with me, cool. If people disagree with me, that's cool too. But I've never claimed to be the voice of black America. And I damn sure know, didn't no white person make me that. Any voice I got is all because of black people. So look, man, I know you just said you can't speak for black people as a monolith. But Shar, you talk to anybody and everybody in our community all day, every day. So I have to ask you, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges we have in the black community right now? Man, that's such a, that's such a, 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 a loaded question because 
the, you know, the answer is, is so, so complex. I mean, it's a lot of different challenges. You know, most of the challenges that we're facing are a lot of generational challenges, you know, things that we've never received healing from. I'm going to always say the biggest challenge that we face, man, is, is, is white supremacy. I'm going to always say that. So it's almost like black America as a whole is collectively, you know, waiting to be let down once again. Like we're just expecting the worst. Like if, you know, I was watching uh, Amber Ruffin, you know, she spoke about the Rittenhouse verdict and, you know, she, she, made it, she made it her duty just to simply remind us that we matter. And I was like, wow, man. I said, you know, in, in, in a case where the justice system let us down yet again, she just had to tell us we matter. You know what I mean? She like, like mm. us, she, she felt mm-hmm. that that's what she felt. Like, even though all of that systemic failure has happened, <laughs> she just needed to remind us that we matter. And man, I think that's just the biggest issue. And that's why I always say white supremacy will always be the biggest issue because black people have to constantly remind themselves that we matter. We got to constantly remind ourselves that our, our meaning is worth something. We have to constantly remind ourselves that everything we've been through in this country, been through in this world, I, it was, was for a reason. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what that reason is, but I mean, we're still here. I really appreciate you being transparent, honest, vulnerable, and sharing your journey. It can help so many people. I know it's helped me. And uh, thank you, Leonard. I appreciate you giving us the time today, man. Nah, Jay, thank you, brother. Appreciate you, King. The Limits is produced by Karen Kinney, Lena Sunsgiri, Barton Gerwood, Brent Bachman, Rachel Neal, Yolanda Sanguini. Our executive producer is Anya Grunman. Special thanks to Charlotte Riggi. Music by Ramteen Arablui. We're back next week. Thank you to everybody. Let's keep it moving and stay positive. I'm Jay Williams. This message comes from NPR sponsor, HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club. NPR Wine Club members have contributed over $1.5 million to helping create a more informed public. B21. Join the charge at nprwineclub.org slash podcast. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.